Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a kind of pat story about the Bay Area wave of the great migration of black Americans out of the South. The shorthand is that people came fleeing racist violence and moving towards the shipyards of World War II. True enough, but the vast majority of black Bay Area residents didn't come during the war, but rather followed someone else and their family here in the next two decades. Dorothy Lazard's new memoir, What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World, tells that story of late 60s and early 1970s San Francisco and Oakland from the perspective of a bookish, quirky black girl with a love for libraries, movies, and discovering all that California could and could not offer. She joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. A librarian and archivist for decades, Dorothy Lazard ran the Oakland History Center at the main branch of the Oakland Public Library for a decade. She was a principled and encyclopedic knower of the city, both its actual streets and peoples, as well as the documents that purported to and sometimes succeeded in telling its story. Always helpful, she was equal parts intimidating and inspiring. Like If you were going to write about her city, you were going to get it right. Ask people about her, and they just say things like hero, legend, luminary. She even got a Twitter hashtag, Dorothy Lazard fan club. But she was not always that person behind the desk who seemed to know everything. She was once a little girl, arriving here after a marathon car ride from St. Louis with her ailing mother and her uncle Shirley, a bewildered Missourian come fresh to Northern California. She'd experienced tremendous personal loss amidst the massive cultural movement of the emerging capital B black community. And that's the story she tells in What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World. Her memoir coming out from Heyday, I believe, tomorrow. 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 Welcome back to Forum, Dorothy Lazard. I'm so happy to have you here for this book, which I've been hearing about for months, and it is now in our hands. Nice to be here. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me back. Um... I want you to start off with this incredible kind of introduction. It's just the opening of the book where you're kind of talking about your family arriving in California alongside many other people who've arrived here. All right. Yeah. The Road West, 1968. My family arrived in California the winter after the summer of love. Ours was not the journey of eager anticipation of the 19th century gold miners who rushed to the Sierra or of the anxious desperation of the gold rush, gold 
sorry, Dust Bowl refugees who came before us. We were reluctant migrants, but all children are. And the three of us in the back seat of that white Pontiac were indeed children, my mother, my big brother Albert, and me. My grandmother, Ella Baskin, had come to claim us. We were the part of her family who had been living precariously but sometimes contentedly in St. Louis, away from her and the rest of her the rest of my mother's clan. This, our first cross-country trip, marked the end of our independence as a nuclear family. The journey along Route 66 was the end and the beginning of everything we had known and would know. As we traveled long and desolate stretches of highway with my mother's younger brother Shelby driving, I tried to imagine what California would be like. The nuns at St. Vincent's had told me about the Golden Gate Bridge, which, with my eight-and-a-half-year-old imagination, I thought would be truly golden. We were headed to San Francisco, to my grandmother's house, where we would live. For how long? The nuns at St. Vincent's didn't say. That was Dorothy Lazard reading from her new memoir, What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World. And, you know, that, that introduction raises some questions, and it would probably be a good place to start. Why were you with nuns at St. Vincent's? Like, you were in an orphanage, um, even though both of your parents at that time were still alive and, and in your life. We were uh, put in care, as they used to say back in the day, uh, because my mother, who had grand mal epilepsy, had uh, become increasingly ill, or very ill, and also my father was, to be fair uh, or accurate, ancient. <laughs> he and was 68 he, when you were born? Uh, according to my birth certificate, not according to Ancestry.com. Uh, I found out when I was in my 40s how old he really was, but we can talk about that later. Um, but he was very old, and he had very young kids. My brother, Albert, is five and a half years older than me. So, you know, wrangling kids, caring for little kids, caring for a little girl, it became um, hmm. too much. And the nuns at our parochial school noticed, and I guess authorities were called. And uh, we were put in St. Vincent's Day Home, wow. which is in Florissant, Missouri, which sits between St. Louis and Ferguson, Missouri. So before you went into care, you had pretty much lived in an African-American world. Absolutely. And then you arrive in this place where you're like the first black girl to go to that, into that orphanage. What did you come to like understand about the world in that process of, of both, you know, being taken away from your parents and also forced into this wider world? Well, what I learned right away was um, th- how black my world was and how normal everything was. You know, St. Louis was very segregated then. Uh, we didn't have white kids at our school, or there were some white kids at our church. Um, the thing I learned was that there were two parts of my identity, the part I recognized as being part of my black community and my black family, and then this whole other world where people would have uh, different attitudes about me, different expectations of me, 
and see me as an alien, really, mm. uh, someone very set apart from them. And I, I felt that way. But it was my first... Um, it was my first recognition of that double consciousness that W.B. Du Bois talks about, where mm-hmm. you're living, you you have a, as I say in the book, you have a racialized self that's an external imprint, and then you have, you know, just your native, natural self, mm-hmm. you know, that you come up with individually and through your family and through your culture. And did you see part of your life trajectory to try to bring those selves into alignment? Or did you see that not as the task, that those two, it was impossible to have those two things in a racist country coming together? You know, when I was a kid, I didn't try to bring them together. I just tried to be me as often as possible. (laughs) (laughs) And, And whatever was accepted, was accepted. And um, I felt very early on, I have to say, that it was, I I didn't perceive it as my job to get people to accept me or Hmm. turn me into, you know, I'm not like some broken white person. You know, I'm actually a black person uh, standing in my own reality, you know. Although, you know, as a kid, I didn't have that wherewithal to to even form that sentence I just shared with you. (laughs) So, you know, I was just, uh, like all kids, I just wanted things to be fair and people to be nice to me. And if they liked me, that was gravy. Um, You know, but it it was difficult. You know, my brother didn't have that same experience because there were two, you know, the Skinner brothers were there at the day home. And, you know, they had a little... I'm assuming uh, at least they could see each other mm-hmm. and be with each other and, and say, yeah, we're here together in a small group, whereas you were I, the only. Ha- I was the only in the first, according yeah. to yeah. what I've researched. So as you got out of there and you begin to you know, join the Baskin clan mm-hmm. out here in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. you take this car ride and... What were your early impressions of how California might be different? The landscape, the people, the places? Well, of course, uh, the landscape, just leaving the Midwest and, and going through the Southwest where everything was just big and open and barren. It just kind of felt like you were, uh, we were a very cowboy movie loving family. <laughs> and so to me, it, it felt like I was kind of driving through a cowboy movie, uh, you know, those open spaces in, uh, in West Texas and, and, and New Mexico and Arizona. I'm trying to get the mm-hmm. state straight. <laughs> um, and the sky was really big, and uh, you didn't see the same kind of architecture. You know, the architecture became less brick and more wood. I, I don't know. It was fascinating. Yeah. It was It was also... Uh, I didn't know what I, I'd see in California, to be honest with you. Yeah, what did California mean to you as a little girl in... St. Louis? It didn't mean anything Hmm. because I didn't, you know, I met my relatives out here. I didn't know them. We had never traveled to California. We had never been in in a car for as long as we were Mm -hmm. uh, when we took that trip here. 
So I, I didn't have any, you know, the nuns told me that, you know, the, they have a Golden Gate Bridge there. And I was imagining <laughs> like this bridge gold, you know, uh, like it was Oz or something. But I didn't have any uh, kind of conception of what the terrain would look like, what my family would be like, because mm-hmm. my mother really didn't talk about her family. Yeah. We're talking with Dorothy Lazard, who recently retired <laughs> as the head librarian of the Oakland History Center, about her memoir of her childhood in San Francisco and Oakland, What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World. What's an image or a place that represents 1970s Black Bay Area to you? We'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. So where'd you land when you uh, you drive into San Francisco? Where do you go? Uh, we go to Cole Street. Uh, my grandmother lived on Cole Street, 1139 Cole Street. <laughs> uh, upstairs, in a, she lived in a duplex upstairs from my Uncle Melvin, her younger son. Mm. And did you like that neighborhood? I love that neighborhood. Yeah. That neighborhood was mind-blowing uh, to me because there were kids all over the place. They were friendly kids and... Um, it was my first encounter with a variety of races, you know, like Asian kids, Chinese kids, Mexican kids, <laughs> Filipino kids. I'd never heard of Mexicans or Filipinos. <laughs> um, you know, all Asians to me were Chinese, but they're not. So learning that was great. And uh, there were biracial kids, which I had never actually seen before that I can recall. So it was just, um, it was a mind blow. And then I had cousins who were my age, so I kind of had some built-in friends uh, who could show me the ropes, like my cousin Donna, Mm -hmm. um, who's a year younger. And... um, and you got to yeah. run the streets? And we got to run the streets. <laughs> I, I was trying to find a good way to say yeah. that. We got to run the streets and play and uh, chase each other and, yeah. and, you know, just leave school like buckshot and and yeah, be at our own devices until dinner time. We'll be back with more with Dorothy Lazard right after this break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are joined in the studio this morning by Dorothy Lazard. She just completed a memoir about her childhood in San Francisco and Oakland. 
What you don't know will make a whole new world. We actually have a caller, Peter in Berkeley, who wants to know a little something. Hey, Peter, welcome. Hey, Alexis. Thank you. Um, I just thought that title was really uh, unusual and charming and uh, very meaningful, uh, certainly resonant with me trying to declare uh, highest civic ideals for the people of the world. So I'm, I'm feeling this potential, oh, if only they knew, if only they knew. So I would like to ask our author uh, where she got that title, why she used it, what mm-hmm. it means for her. Beautiful. Thank you. Great question, Peter. Well, I got that title from my grandmother, and my grandmother um, was a person who, for a time, I was in a little bit of conflict with when I was uh, 9, 10, 11 years old. Um, She and I got into it about uh, the moon landing in 1969, and... um, she was often saying that phrase to me, what you don't know will make a whole new world. Uh, so that's where I got the title from. And that was something I was reminded just last week uh, that other people's grandmothers said, uh, one of my former uh, library colleagues said, oh, my grandmother used to say that all the time. So, uh, what, like, Has the interpretation of that title, kind of to, to Peter's question, has that changed for you over time? Well, Sure. Uh, because it's it's eternally true. Um, <laughs> it, it resonates with me as a librarian because every day I had the opportunity to learn something mm. and um, and also discover areas of life and uh, human inquiry that I don't know anything about. Mm. So yeah. So when you when you first landed in San Francisco, you ended up creating your first deep connection with the library, right? Yes. Which library was it? A Western Edition branch. <laughs> and what was it? What would you do when you went there? Uh, I try to touch everything I could get my <laughs> hands on. Um, I was a, a number one. It was a place where I could go and uh, feel like you know I wasn't getting in it, into any kind of trouble. You know, I discovered this uh, library when I was ten. We had uh, just moved from the Haight Ashbury which is what Coal Valley was called then. Um, And uh, we had moved to Pine Street. And, you know, I started roaming around very reluctantly because I didn't want to move again, but we had. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found the Western Edition branch, and uh, I would just, any book that looked interesting or had an interesting title, I was drawn to book cover design. I was drawn to fonts, uh, sizes of books. Um, and I just pick them up and read as much of them as I could or as much as interests me. And it is an amazing thing that you can just pick any book up at the library and read it. You know, I mean, I think we obviously would take it profound, uh, institution. Um, and every, every country in the world should have one. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So it was, uh, Literally mind blowing, mind expanding, without the use of uh, peyote or anything. <laughs> it was mind expanding. So we're gonna get to some of the traumatic things that are that are in this book. Mm-hmm. But you also write the early 1970s was the first best time to be a black kid in America. Why? Well, I think it was because. Um, You know, people in my part of the, as they call it, the boomer generation, we weren't uh, 
fully involved in marches, although I know there were a lot of equally young people who were. Um, I was not a part of that uh, uh, Mm -hmm. cultural or political scene. And um, things had started to open up in a way that they hadn't in previous generations. Uh, Culturally, we're starting to see more representation on TV and in the movies. Musically, things were expanding, you know, dealing with issues of uh, social consciousness, political engagement. Um, And I just felt like we see ourselves in the way that, say, my sister, Sarah, who's 10 years older, um, did not see herself. Mm. You know, there were black dolls and, you know, so there there was a reflection of who we really were coming slowly uh, but surely into the mainstream. Mm. And uh, that had a profound effect on, and also teachers. Yeah. You know, for the first time I had black teachers in the 70s. And um, they were showing us that it's it's great to wear your hair natural. It's great to wear uh, African garb or, you know, just be free in a way that, I think previous generations were not free. You know, I have siblings. All my siblings are older than me, and I saw um, how constricted their ideas of what blackness is was. You know, so I was very um, aware of how I was perceiving the world in a really different way than they had perceived the world hmm. and that the world had perceived them. Even though your sister was uh, had a profound influence on your life, in part bringing both kind of the love and appreciation of art as well as kind of radical thought at the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like she was kind of one of those conduits Mm -hmm. for what was happening in that consciousness into your own life. Yes, she was. It's my sister, Sarah. Yeah. Um, She had a profound effect on me because she had come out here, like so many people did um, in the 60s and 70s, to go to school because at the time California had great schools and they were relatively cheap. Um. She brought home all kinds of books, you know, books about Pan-Africanism and French literature. And uh, she loved uh, Edgar Allan Poe and, and Paul Lawrence Dunbar poetry. And so, you know, as these books were piling up at the house, um, I would poke into them. Yeah, yeah so she's definitely my mentor, in all things intellectual. So as you are navigating this new place, coming to know its streets, navigating just being part of this big, uh, you know, the Baskin clan, you know, all these different uncles and grandma and, you know, different folks, um, things are happening to your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, why don't you tell? Like, how, how do you want to tell what happened to your parents? Um, well, it depends on what you want me to say. Uh, my mom, as I said, had grand mal epilepsy, which she had had since she was 19 years old. And so um, our family life was really centered around, even from earliest days, was centered around her care. And uh, well, I don't know how to tell this story, actually. Uh, I'll start with my father. Um my father was very old, and uh, we were living apart from him for the first time. Mm-hmm. 
And one day I got a call when I uh, was leaving for camp, uh, day camp, camp, and the uh, phone rang, and it was my, old, my father's oldest child who called to tell us our father had died. He had been living with her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was the first like out of the kind blue, of blow. Though. Just out of the blue. We exchanged letters. You know, I would write letters. Letter writing figures prominently in part of the book. Um, and I would write letters back to my father and um, my sister Mary, my oldest uh, paternal sister, and, you know, and tell them, you know, when you're 10, what do you have to say? You know, I did well in school, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And and occasionally she'd call to say, you know, things are OK. And how are you doing in California? And mm-hmm. then she talked to my mom for a bit, mm-hmm. you know, but their relationship, my parents relationship wasn't like riven by a divorce or domestic violence or anything like that it just kind of i'm claim you know my grandmother came back to claim her daughter um who had been as i said extended stay in a hospital away from st louis by the way and so um my father died um I, we were told, and um, that kind of shook us because for me, the way I perceived it was, oh, my goodness, we'll never get back to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Wasn't sure I wanted to, but, you know, that break right, just right. seemed like, oh, now we're actually Californians now, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So that kind of made that break. And then— um, Well, you said you had one other thought, too, which was how close you were then to— being an orphan oh for sure you know when you're 10 um or when you're a kid I should say I think the whole idea of losing your parents doesn't really come into your head you know they were there when you got there they'll always be here no matter what the situation is Mm -hmm. so certainly there was shock that you know my father had died even though he was ancient Mm -hmm. um he was very old man um, and then it also hit me like all the stuff we left in our house. Uh, what happened to it? Mm-hmm. And maybe that was a budding archival moment I had. <laughs> I don't know. But I was uh, kind of concerned about, well, what what's going to happen to all of our toys? Although I had never had that feeling before because mm-hmm. I, I guess somewhere in the back of my mind I thought, oh, you'll get back there and you know right right there was like it it brought a permanence to the changes that were happening in your life absolutely and no one really in my family talked about loss or how you should feel or if it was okay to express grief sorrow sadness fear you know nobody was really talking about that and then my mom I kind of don't want to say more about my mom because Mm -hmm. um I'll let the readers read that because that's a, a much more uh, involved involved emotional journey, yeah. if you don't mind. So one of our listeners, Chris, writes in to say, really enjoying this discussion with Dorothy and particularly curious about the African-American experience as she moved from San Francisco to Oakland. What changed in her experience as her location and the times shifted beyond her initial life here in the 1970s? Oh, what changed is, um, well, Oakland hit me as such a a different place in San Francisco because, like I said, I'd 
moved from Cole Street to Pine Street, and Pine Street seemed not to have any kids uh, on it, uh, very few. And um, when I got to Oakland, you know, Oakland was warmer. The climate was warmer. <laughs> there were kids everywhere. Um, also, my uh, family dynamic changed because... I was surrounded by my Oakland-based cousins, and mm-hmm. um, and there were my mother's sisters, so they were taking care of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't really um, required to play the role that I had been playing a, a lot more in San Francisco, mm-hmm. where there were fewer people. So I was taking care of um, my mom and also working sometimes in my grandmother's board and care home that she ran. And so I got to be a kid, but it was mm-hmm. kind of weird because um, I was used to, like, making coffee and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, watching my mom cook home fries in the, in the, uh, in the um, afternoon. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of altered who I was as a person. And, it, and some of it was—a lot of it was fun, but some of it was hard at first, To It's like, now you're just a kid. That's all you got to mm. worry about. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's, um, let's bring in uh, Roberto in uh, South San Francisco. Welcome. Uh, good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, so thank you for this conversation. I'm appreciating it, and I look forward to, to checking out the book. Um, you know, this question y'all raised of uh, black community in San Francisco in the 70s, it, it reminds me of, for me, what was a very beautiful time in my childhood. You know, I was I was born in 71 and grew up in Borough Heights in the Mission District, and there was always a presence of black families and black community. You know, the Mission is... is a barrio has been known as a barrio for many decades, but that barrio always included black families. Similarly, Bernal Heights, you know, which is much less diverse economically and racially today, was a very diverse working class community in the in the 70s. And when I look back at pictures of my childhood, like at classroom parties, for example, it was there were there were as many black children as there were. Latino children and white children and Filipino children, Chinese, mm. very diverse. And and that, for me at least, is the San Francisco I grew up with and remember. Um, and it's a San Francisco I miss. And, you know, I cherish those memories mm-hmm. of that diversity and the presence of black people in San Francisco yeah. uh, that sadly has diminished so much today. Yeah. Hey, thank you for that, Roberto. You know, it's really reminding me of there's a photo of Mr. Eckhart's fourth grade class that you described as wondrously diverse. It was. Um, if you can just see, it's, it is kind of an amazing um, crew of, of folks with a white teacher who you feel like did actually a pretty good job. Oh, he was fantastic. He was mm-hmm. fantastic. He was interesting. Uh, he kind of looked like Dennis the Menace's dad. <laughs> uh, so that was appealing to me. And... Um, but he just was interested and he interesting and interested in us learning. Yeah. Um, and that matters so much to kids when your teacher's excited about what they're teaching you. Yeah. Now, uh, he introduced me to 
the notion of kids being citizens of the world. And that was profoundly empowering. Hmm. And it made me want to travel. It's like, well, what does Japan look like? And, you know, what do all these countries look like? And why are they shaped the way they're shaped? You know, you learn a lot of geography in fourth grade. You know, you learn about the mission system in fourth grade if you go to school in California. Um, and so just a lot of historical and geographical things uh, that he introduced us to made me want to know more. It does feel like this book, too, could be used. I mean, there's some heavy stuff in here, but it also it feels like it has young adults in mind, too, or even or even kids in mind that they could draw from this and draw from your experience. I hope so. I hope so. I, I set out to actually I set out writing this book to kind of commemorate my 50th year in California. So mm-hmm. in 20. Uh, 18. I wanted to do something. And then I thought, well, a party, you know, a party's just for a few hours, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but what could really say how much this place has impacted me, influenced me, changed the way I perceive myself and my place in society? Mm. Um, so started with that, but I also wanted to tell the story that this little kid on the cover mm would want to tell what would she want you to know about her what worked for her what Mm. didn't work for her and it was kind of like um you know i've i've gotten so much so many accolades um some of them hyperbolic (laughs) you know but i'm grateful for the appreciation people have uh for me and and the the work i've done as a librarian but um i wanted there to be some kind of record of that time, mm. you know. I love that. Yeah. yeah. We're talking with former head librarian of the Oakland Public Library History Center, Dorothy Lazard, about her memoir of her childhood in San Francisco and Oakland. It's called What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World Out Tomorrow from uh, Hey Day. We'd love to hear from you. Were you a black kid in the 1970s? What Dorothy calls the first best time to be a black kid in America. What was your experience of that? Maybe what role did libraries play in your childhood? Or what's a place that you took refuge? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Dorothy Lazard, a legendary librarian here in the Bay Area, about her memoir of her childhood in San Francisco and Oakland. It's called What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World. Um, Dorothy, I mean, I think one of the toughest things in this book, and you're kind of gesturing to it um, right before we went to the break, is that as a reader, little Dorothy, the person you see on the cover, you know, she doesn't get a chance to mourn when she needs to mourn. She doesn't get a chance to feel afraid when she needs to feel afraid, to be protected when she needs protecting. As you've gone back over your story to write this, like, what have you wanted to tell or to give to that young Dorothy? Just, I, I think I would want her to know that everything was going to be okay. Hmm. And kids don't always know that. There's not always someone who is a reassuring presence in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the motivation for writing this book is to kind of reveal some of the feelings that I have or had as a kid that went kind of unmanaged, unaddressed, mm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Are those the right words? Yes. <laughs> I'm sticking with those. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a deeper question here, too, which is that, you know, I think there's a reading of your life story that I'm guessing you don't actually agree with, but just it goes something like this. It'd be like, even if you've got structural disadvantages, you know, lost family, um, you know, a a black woman in racist America, Mm -hmm. um, if you're super smart and you read a lot and you work hard in school, anybody can make it that. Like you did, and I'm oh, assuming the bootstraps. Yeah, st- theory. Yeah, I'm. Agree- I'm assuming you disagree with that kind of individualistic assessment. So, what are the morals that could be drawn from your move from kind of like precarity to to stability? Well, I don't think it's as easy as you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you read a lot, everything will work out. You have to have a whole community of people. I think. It doesn't even have to be a big community, but some core group of people. They might be relatives. They might be teachers mm-hmm. uh, that will kind of guide you, protect you, steer you, because um, none of us really make it on our own. Mm-hmm. I mean, and a book isn't going to save you entirely. There are too many hazards in the world, mm-hmm. uh, both psychological, physical, there are just too many. And so it's too easy. I'd hate people to read this book or hand it to a kid and say, oh, well, you'll be fine. Do it like this. <laughs> do it like this. You'll be fine because, you know, you read a lot as a kid. I mean, I think I the successes that I've had in my life, in my career, have more to do with, you know, having a community of people around and being able to hear, yes, yes, you can do that. Yes, it's okay. Yes, you failed, but you picked yourself back up. Mm. Um, So it's not just how many books you've read. Uh, It's more about um, gathering that community. Yeah. Um, Let's take another caller. Let's take uh, Stuart in... Oakland. Welcome. Hello. Hey, Stuart. I'm really enjoying... Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. I'm really enjoying this program uh, today, and thank your guest host. I'm going to buy this book as soon as I can. 
Good. She's happy about that. So uh, (laughs) it's so reminiscent of my childhood. We moved from West Berkeley, which was very mixed: Japanese, Black, Chinese, uh, Mexican, and then my parents moved to an almost all-white neighborhood Mm. in the late '60s, and it was such a transition to not have. The community that was just free-flowing, you know, we went out and played in the street and you came home and had lunch and went out. This was totally different. And it was trying to grow a childhood in a place where no one had ever been around a family of color. Mm. And going to elementary school, I was the only kid Mm. um, in the class of color. And by the time I got to the fifth grade, I could barely read. And my fifth and sixth grade teacher, Marion Kane at Chabot Elementary School, was our school librarian. And she knew that about me and never said a word, never made me feel bad. But she put me in charge of reading to the kindergarten and the first grade Mm. for two years and working in the library. And she says, you got a great imagination. You really make these stories come alive. And the kids just loved it. And uh, but she said it takes um, a, a lot of people to get you through this, mm-hmm. these transitions that children go through. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the neighborhood, we all became really tight and really good friends. I stay in touch with them now and I'm 66. <laughs> and um, it, it um, you know, I remember one time trying to fix the bike chain my chain on my bike and i would ride it up the street and it fall off again and i try to fix it and ride down fall off again and this older man white older gentleman who lived down the street went into his garage got his tools and when he saw me go by again he stopped me and he said turn your bike over and he he showed me how to fix the chain just out of the blue i learned how to use tools for the first time from this gentleman yeah the community is what really makes part of growing up and develops your childhood into you being a person who can ask questions, raise your hand, and do your best. Just be who you are. Yeah. And um, I, I can't wait, wait to read this book. Thank I think you it's so much, Stuart. to hear from her. Yeah, really appreciate that. Really appreciate I mean, I imagine when you've been a librarian, particularly in Oakland Public Library, you're, you're imagining that you're helping people like that. Absolutely. I hope I am. (laughs) I hope we all are. We librarians are. Um, Because it's a place of discovery. Um, It's not, you know, uh, I think some people have the idea that, you know, people come in, they grab a book, and they walk out. But it's really about creating a relationship with the readers who come in maybe regularly, maybe rarely. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting to know what they're interested in, suggesting things for them to read. Hey, I noticed that you had on a sports jersey. Let's talk about that. <laughs> so it's, um, I don't know. I miss some of that. I yeah. miss some of that give and take of ideas and interest and things like that. Yeah. Um, let's bring in uh, Karen in Oakland. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm a 64-year resident of Oakland, and I was a child in the 70s and teenager, and uh, 
grew up on 68th, and it was called The Projects. And um, it's torn down now. They have new buildings there on 68th. And I went to Lockwood Elementary School. And I loved the library. And my mom was an avid reader. And we had over 500 books in our living room. She had wow. cases all the way around. So she uh, strongly encouraged us to read during the summer as many books as my sister and I could read. So it really broadened our imagination and uh, our love for reading and the library. And um, also living in the projects, we didn't know, you know, oh, those were the projects. It was a sense of community. The watermelon man would come every weekend. There would be a guy in a Cadillac with fish in the back seat and rabbits, you know. And the uh, um, milk would be delivered at the door, you know, in the glass bottles. It was fascinating, and I cherish those memories. And um, I just still love Oakland, even with all the changes, because of, you know, my childhood and how I was nourished by the community and my mom and my grandma. Oh, that was fantastic. Karen, what a, what a lovely story. I mean, you know, Dorothy, you... you don't talk about it this that much in this book, but I know that you do think that a lot of the Oakland that you knew has been dismantled, maybe moved, maybe some of it's still there. How, how do you think about all the changes that, that have occurred? I'm very nostalgic. I don't mind saying that. And um, I miss so many buildings. You know, you drive down the street with me and I'm always pointing out. You know what that used to that, be. You know what that used to be. <laughs> and uh, you know what used to be there. Uh, they totally changed in front of that store. You know, that kind of thing. So it's just this ongoing narrative that never stops of what's been changed, repurposed, torn down. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of grieve all of that. Um, and also just you know, seeing a lot of black people in Oakland Mm -hmm. or seeing black people in West Oakland, which you don't see that much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, but everything changes, doesn't it? Nothing's permanent. Yeah. You know, there's some pretty powerful moments in this book where you're kind of identities as a young woman, as a black woman, someone kind of in a precarious situation within the family. You know, they really make you vulnerable, were you reading the kind of theory, the black feminists who were kind of developing why that might be? Did you know about those theories? Or were you kind of coming to them in your own ways? Well, uh, during the scope of this book, I wasn't really coming. I, I hadn't really engaged too much with feminist theory. I mean, I knew Ms. Magazine had come out and uh, certainly Essence. Everybody was really excited when Essence came out in 71. Um, but, you know... For me, feminism kind of came, an understanding of it, a clearer understanding of it came kind of later when I was more Mm -hmm. in high school. Mm -hmm. And it was more about work Hmm. and earnings and things like that as opposed to interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. and uh, sexism and sexual harassment. Those kinds of things came kind of later when I, you know, was later high school, into college, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. We are talking with the legendary former head librarian of the Oakland Public Library History Center, Dorothy Lazard, about her memoir of her childhood coming from St. Louis, Missouri, to San Francisco and eventually Oakland. 
It's called What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World. It is out tomorrow from Heyday, but of course, you know, you can pre-order. Um, this <laughs> is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Let's bring in a different Karen. This Karen from Redwood City. Welcome, Karen. Hi. Thanks for having me on. I just popped in and heard this story, and it reminded me of Clara Jones, who was uh, my local library in Detroit when I was growing up in the 70s. And she later went on to become the first black head of the Detroit library system. You may know her name. Her daughter lived out here, and when Clara Jones retired, she moved out here, Mm. and it's been a long, long time. And I... She helped me. She let me check out Bambi, my first <laughs> chapter book. There should have been a law how many times against the law. I checked that book out so many times. <laughs> you can't check it out anymore. You can't check it out anymore. But I, I made it through it, not. and part of it's because of her. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you, Karen. I love these library reflections. Um, you know, I want to get to, to Jim in Mountain View has uh, a question about the role of libraries now. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Ms. Lazard, I'm wondering how you see the future of libraries. During the pandemic, a lot of people could not go to libraries. They were closed. And uh, the Internet Archive, a great San Francisco mm-hmm. institution, institution yeah. put uh, all kinds of uh, books online so that people could check them out um, virtually, electronically, and they just lost mm-hmm. uh, a terrible copyright lawsuit. Um, they didn't. They haven't. They're, they're still appealing. Sure. But um, the what do you think will happen to libraries in the post-pandemic era, mm. where education becomes more and more online? Well, what we were doing uh, in Oakland, just to give you one example, and many um, communities uh, certainly followed suit, or maybe we were following them, but uh, people during the pandemic here locally, we had something kind of like DoorDash. You know, people would uh, put books on reserve, uh, children's books, adult books, new books, on reserve, and we'd uh, package them up uh, in paper bags and have them sitting out. Uh, people could drive up, and someone, uh, one of the library workers, would take it curbside and uh, deliver your books that way. So we never really stopped the service. Um, I know my last couple of years um, during the pandemic, my last couple of years of work, uh, our increased. Uh, Online reference service really hmm. hit all-time high, hmm. hit an all-time high, because uh, more people were just asking their uh, reference questions uh, via email. Hmm. And so our electronic book, I can't quote numbers anymore, uh, but our electronic book circulation increased exponentially. Uh, people certainly found out about our um our uh what should i call it i forgot what we called it our yeah. our door to door service where you just put a book on hold and then drive up a day later and pick it up or later in that afternoon and pick it up 
And so, yeah, we, the library, I believe, and, and you might get some blowback on this, Alexis, <laughs> but I, I feel like the American Public Library is a living, breathing thing, and I think it's basically unkillable. Hmm. Just because it's so central to the provisioning it's of the different only- services, it can adapt, it can... It can adapt. We pivot all the time. You know, they kept using the word pivot during the uh, the mm-hmm. height of the pandemic. And the, the library has always been pivoting. You know, the library pivoted when it started to uh, hire people of color. It started mm-hmm. pivoting when uh, they diversified collections. Uh, it It's perpetually pivoting because we are uh, in service to our communities and whatever our hmm. communities want, we try to serve. It's the only institution in America that I know of that's open to everybody, no matter hmm. their socioeconomic status, their housing status, their educational levels. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm sticking by that. I think it's <laughs> unkillable. And a beautiful, beautiful. It's like, it's like uh, the Terminator. Yeah. I'll be back. <laughs> Um, Dorothy, this book is really fantastic. It's really good. And I also just, you know, for those of you out there who may have run into Dorothy in her role as the person who knows everything, it's so amazing to come back to this moment when you really absolutely knew nothing about the Bay Area. And it's a precious time in a kid's life. Yeah, it really is. It's really beautiful. We've also been playing uh, musical selections uh, mentioned throughout the book and we're going out um, to some Stevie Wonder here thank you oh my god higher ground it's so good we've been talking with former head librarian of the Oakland Public Library History Center Dorothy Lazard about her memoir of her childhood in San Francisco and Oakland it's called What You Don't Know Will Make a Whole New World thank you so much for joining us Dorothy thank you for having me again You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Marisa Lagos. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.